All right, well, we're going to continue what we normally do on a Sunday morning, and that is to open up God's Word and to preach through it and to allow the Spirit working through the Word to shape us into the people God wants us to be. So you can turn to 1 Timothy. That's where we've been for the last few months. We're in chapter 3 now. Um, I want to thank Mark for preaching last week um, from the Gospel of Matthew about Christ in the garden. What an what a encouragement to you and to me that was. Um, I was blessed by that. Thank you, Mark. And now we'll jump back into our text uh, this morning. And as you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, I'm going to ask you, what do you expect from church leaders? What do you expect from the elders of a church? In our situation, I could ask, what do you want from me? What do you expect? Uh, the last time we were in these, this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy all those years ago, we were looking at the qualifications that Paul gives to Timothy about the leaders of the church and what they need to be like. We spent a lot of time in this because this is an issue that's really important. Like really, really important for a church to be healthy, the leaders got to be healthy. If the leaders are not healthy, the church is not going to be healthy. And since we're committed to going through book by book, verse, verse by verse, letting God speak to us, we come to this part on elders and we want to make sure we go through and get everything God has for us. Too many problems are the result of either a pastor or elder not knowing what they're called to do and be, or the church having wrong expectations of a pastor and putting on unbiblical expectations on the pastor and then there's disagreement and discord in the body. And so it's so good, not just for elders, pastors, overseers to get a handle on what this text is saying, but for the whole church together to understand this. And we'll see that this, though it is addressed to Timothy all those years ago, and though it's specifically about overseers in the church, this actually applies to all of us. Uh, very directly applies to all of us, and I'm going to show you how and why in a few minutes. We're talking about, as you see there in chapter 3, verse 1, the office of overseer. Now, if you were here two weeks ago, you got the introduction to this text, and we spent a lot of time trying to unpack what it is that an elder slash overseer slash pastor is. And uh, the first thing, or one of the things I made really clear is that the Bible talks about leadership in the church using uh, words that are interchangeable. Uh, elder is used a lot. Overseer is used a few times. Uh, also used is the word pastor or often shepherd. And what we found in the New Testament is that elder, overseer, pastor, or shepherd are all used interchangeably. And so elders are pastors, pastors are elders, overseers are elders slash pastors. It's all the same office. They're all referring to the same position. And it's very important to get these right. And not only is it important to get the titles right, pastor, elder, overseer, but also to get the work right. 
what are they called to do? And what we found was, just by way of review, the elders, who are also called pastors, are given a, a word that kind of characterizes how they're supposed to care for the church. This word comes up more than once, and that word is shepherd. Shepherd. Now, I just want to say that some people are kind of dismissive now of the shepherding task for the pastor. We're in a more modern age, more innovative than in years past. Technology has advanced. Do we really need a shepherd? That's kind of an ancient metaphor. Not really useful for today's world, right? So some would say. One prominent pastor was being asked about this very question about should pastors still be called shepherds? His response was this, that word shepherd needs to just go away. Jesus talked about shepherds because there was one over there in the pasture, he could point to it, but to bring that imagery back in today's church and say, pastor, you're the shepherd of the flock. No, I've never seen a flock. I've never spent five minutes with a shepherd. It was culturally relevant in the time of Jesus, but it's not culturally relevant anymore. Uh, that's how some people see it, is that now we're off to something else. It's not shepherding that's needed in the church anymore. It's something else. This idea has permeated so many churches, the mindset is everywhere that we don't need shepherding anymore. Uh, maybe you've been in a church this way with a pastor you don't even know. You don't even know who the elders are, and they don't know anything about your life. They couldn't possibly be caring for your own individual needs, shepherding you and caring for you. He locks himself up in that metaphorical, proverbial ivory tower and kind of does his thing, shows up on Sundays, preaches a sermon. You never hear from him again. Speaking of this problem in the church, one author said, we don't want ministers anymore, we want CEOs. We don't want prophets, we want politicians. We don't want godliness, we want experience. We don't want spirituality, we want efficiency. We don't want humility, we want charisma. We don't want godly authority, we want relational skill. And you might say, well, it's no wonder that the church in America is weak if the pastors aren't being taught or told to pastor, to shepherd. If we want to use, sorry, if we want to build the church that God has called us to serve, we need to build with God's materials and use God's blueprint. We can't build a skyscraper using Play-Doh. We can't use the world's wisdom to build the church. We go back to the steel rebar of the truth of God and we let that shape what we do. And so we're going to build God's church, God's way, trusting in God's spirit. And we're going to see that the Bible says that elders, pastors, overseers ought to shepherd. Shepherd. It's an ancient idea. Uh, but we need to talk about it again because it is often misunderstood or even put off to the side as irrelevant as we already looked at people saying that. It's all over the Scripture. Moses, the first major leader of the people of God in the Old Testament, was first a shepherd of sheep before he was a shepherd of people. He was called to shepherd the people of Israel out from Egypt. 
David, before he was the king of Israel, was also a shepherd, learning the skills to care for sheep before he could understand what it took to care for a nation. He was a man after God's own heart. In Jeremiah chapter 23, God speaks to the bad shepherds of Israel. These bad shepherds who only cared about themselves, only cared about feeding themselves, feeding their ego. And his promise was that one day I'm going to raise up true shepherds, real shepherds. Shepherds that care about me, shepherds that will really care about the people. What did Jesus say about himself when he showed up on the scene in John chapter 10? I am what? The good shepherd. What did David call his Lord in Psalm 23? The Lord is my what? Shepherd. What does Paul tell church leaders to do in Acts chapter 20? He's talking to the elders. What do they do before Paul departs? What do they need to know? What is their task? Shepherd the flock of God. What did Peter tell the elders to do in 1 Peter chapter 5? Shepherd the flock of God. That's among you. Shepherd them. Care for them. God is a shepherd. Jesus is a shepherd. Jesus calls the leaders in his church to shepherd it is God who is over all and caring for all, and He commissions some to be shepherds of His people in His church. Jesus talking to Peter. You guys remember this? He had failed. Peter had failed miserably. He felt probably like he would never be able to serve his Lord again, and Jesus needed to go and encourage him. Remember what He told him to do? Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. Three times Jesus emphasizes the need of pastoral ministry. And we're going to come to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and we're going to see that, that leadership in the church is not CEO type stuff, business model from the world type stuff. Uh, leadership in the world does not necessarily qualify one for leadership in the church. The world needs shepherds and the church needs shepherds. Charles Jefferson, writing about a hundred years ago, was even back then bemoaning the fact that too few of the pastors of churches saw themselves as shepherds, and he wrote this. He said, a few things are certain. We live in a universe created by a shepherd God. The Lord is our shepherd. Our world is redeemed by a shepherd Savior. Our elder brother Christ is a shepherd the man whom humanity needs most is a shepherd. Every messenger of Christ is sent to do shepherd's work. And we are to stand before a shepherd judge. So what do you expect from your elders, your pastors, your overseers? You should expect that they function like shepherds. We talked a little bit more last time when we were on this subject about what that exactly looks like, but it would mean that they are setting an example for you, that they are feeding you, that they are leading you, that they actually know you, that they care about you enough to protect you, that they're interested in your best and they want you to flourish in your walk with the Lord. Those are some of the things they do. And so what kind of men should they be? That's where we get to this text. I love that the Lord is so kind to us to give us really specific instructions and even details about what kind of men He wants to lead His church. Let's read this text together. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. And then we're going to go into more detail. 
and see how this applies to our church family at this point. Let's read chapter 3, verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Let's start with some general remarks. First and most obviously, this position is for men. This is not a statement of superiority of one gender over another. Hopefully we've established that. And if you need to review, uh, a few weeks ago, we went over in the previous chapter, the section where he's addressing women and men in the church. And we talked about certain gender roles. Obviously in the text, there's three reasons. They're quite clear this is given to men. First, I already mentioned the previous section in chapter two, where women are told that they ought to not hold authority or hold offices to exercise authority in the church. Secondly, as you read through this, you probably already noticed it, is that the masculine pronoun is used again and again and again all throughout. He desires a noble task. He must be this. He must be that. Third, in verse 2, there's that qualification uh, that you see of being the husband of one wife. In Greek, it literally reads a one-woman man. And so the text is literally saying that he must be a man. What kind of man? The man of one woman. And we'll go on to see deeper what that means. So God has given this office to men. Now, a second general observation about this text is uh, something D.A. Carson said in studying this one. He said, there's something about this list that's remarkable. And the remarkable thing about this list is how unremarkable it is. Think about it. There's nothing here about your IQ. There's nothing here about what kind of education you need to have had. There's nothing here about the kind of success you've needed to have in the world, uh, business acumen, money management skills, nothing about seminary, nothing like that. Here, he's giving character qualifications, and really there's only one thing in this list that's about a skill that you need to have. There's only one competency that you need to have. The rest is all about character. The one skill is the ability to teach, you see in verse 2. The rest of it is about character. It's about character. In other words, what this means, and this is why it applies, this text applies to all of us, what this means is that the overseers in the church, the elders in the church, are to be nothing really special, except they are to be exemplary. It's not that they're categorically different from everybody else. That they're the ones with the higher education and the higher IQ. It's not that. They're the ones that are meant to be living such a life of purity and faithfulness and holiness that like we said a couple weeks ago, you ought to be able to say, hey, you want to know what a Christian's like? Look at the elders. Look at them and look at the way they pursue the Lord and hate their sin and serve the body. Look at them. So this is just a list of really what all Christians are meant to be. 
which is the other side of this, is whatever you expect from a church leader, you ought to expect from yourself. If you expect the elders to be hospitable people who invite people into their home and care for them, if you expect them to be generous and loving with their time to spend with you, well, expect that of yourself as well. Because this is given to the church so that the elders would set an example. Why? So that all Christians would do this stuff. This is for all of us together to learn what it is like to live as believers in the body of Christ. It is not as if, you know, elders can't get drunk, but everyone else is off the hook. It's not saying this. It's not saying that the elders have these hired standards that you're not held to. It is for all, and the elders must be remarkable only in the sense that they're unremarkably committed to the character qualities of the text. So that's what they're called to be. So how do you spot one? How do you know who the elders are? How do you identify them? And we're going to see that we already talked the last time that the elders are given from God as gifts to the church, but they're identified by one, verse one, their desire, but they also are identified by certain character qualifications. And the character qualifications is what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at two main categories, and they're going to have subcategories, but the two main things we're going to look at this morning that elders are called to be are related to, first, his character, and second, his family. His character and his family. I want you to look at verse 2 with me. Therefore, an overseer must be. Stop right there. Must be. This is not optional. Uh, He's about to get into the list of qualifications, and he's saying this is a non-negotiable part of leadership, is they must have these character qualifications. Uh, We must not fall under the the spell of charisma, Uh, not fall under the spell of talent and ability. How many churches have been hurt by guys who had great charisma, and amazing ability. And they could command a crowd. They could get up in front and get people laughing or crying. They could pull out their hearts by their oratory. But their character, they lacked integrity. They weren't meeting the rest of the qualifications here. This is non-negotiable. Is character must be king. Character must be first. Character over talent every day of the week. Think about it. Who do you want overseeing your soul? Slick businessman, sweet talker, guy who can get a lot done, guy who's got a gift of gab and can impress you. You want that man overseeing your soul? Or someone that you could sense he loves the Lord He's been humbled by his own sin and recognizes his own need for a Savior. He understands the weight of the call to care for the church that God has put him in. By the world's standards, he's unimpressive. But he's the type of person the more you get to know, the more you respect. 
That's the kind of person I would love to have caring for my soul, to love have caring for our church. And so let's see what he's like. Look at what it says. He must be non-negotiable. He must be above reproach, irreproachable. Uh, above reproach. This is the first category that we're going to look at. This, this word kind of represents the heading, and everything else kind of falls under this. Above reproach. It has the idea of, uh, literally, the, the word in Greek, not able to be held. You can't grab onto the loose ends of this man's life and expose something that he's trying to hide. You can't grab onto some issue, some crime, some sin that's obvious in his life and turn him in for it. You can't see any disqualifications because of lack of character irreproachable you can't hold him you can't point out the problems the sins the issues in his life to to be above reproach means this that if you were to find out about some sin in this person's life this ongoing secret sin you would be shocked if you were to find out uh, that his integrity wasn't intact, that he had been doing th- some things undercover, trying to bol- bolster his own pride or feed his own selfish appetites, you would be amazed. Because so obviously in his life, above reproach means the character is shining forth. And that word above reproach, it, it does refer to reputation, but it's referring to a deserved reputation. It's not just that the elder has been able to fool everyone in his church so they all think he's really got his life together. This is the kind of reputation where what you see on the outside is who he is once you get to know him even more. This is referring to this man's reputation that he has built when no one else is looking. Don't you want that person who isn't needing to be coerced or pressured into caring for the church? The kind of person who pursues holiness when no one is looking, who loves the body of believers with no one pressuring him to do so, the one who hates his own sin for the fact that it offends his Lord. This is the kind of character that the elder is called to have. And then the words that come under this above reproach word, uh, look with me what comes next. The husband of one wife. I'm actually going to put that under the next category of his family, and we'll deal with that in a second. And we're going to also see that character and family are, are hard to separate because they're linked. He says you've got to be above reproach. You've got to be a husband of one wife. Look at these next three words. Sober-minded. Self-controlled, respectable, sober-minded. It's referring to an inner disposition, your mind. It is the opposite of drunkenness, but it also has the idea of an inner calm, an inner peace, an inner restfulness, a clear-headedness. The one who's sober-minded isn't mean. It doesn't mean he's always serious all the time. That the pastors need to be somber people who never laugh. That's not at all what he's describing. It is describing an unworried, resting in Christ, security, an understanding of the truth. God's word and God's gospel have so shaped this person's mind that the way they view the world is in peace, in calm. There's a trust, like a calm sea. This man's mind is not raging It does not panic. It is not worried. It is not always anxious about things they don't need to be anxious about. An elder can't be a chicken little, (laughs) panicking all the time about the issues that are going on. He's sober-minded. 
in the next word after that, sober-minded, he's also self-controlled. And that more refers to the outer expression of the sober mind. The, the mind must be sober so the self can be controlled. If the mind is not under control, if the mind is not at rest, if the nine, mind is not uh, at ease, with the, with, not overcome by worry and anxiety, well, what's going to happen? Then the self will not have control. If the mind's a mess, eventually that will show itself in the way that you live. And so this is referring to the elder's inner character that goes to the outer character. And friends, remember this is for all of us. Your mind matters. (laughs) What you let into your mind matters. Because if you want to be self-controlled, you have to be sober-minded. Your mind has to be grounded in the revealed Word of God so it can be at rest, so the self can be controlled. Self-control. The fruit of a sober mind. One French poet said, How shall I be able to rule over others if I have not full power and command of myself? Or the wisdom of God in Proverbs, verse 32 of chapter 16. Listen to this. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. You hear that? Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit is better than he who takes a city. I mean, just imagine with me, two resumes come in. Both guys want to be leaders in the church. The first guy has on his resume, I've taken over a city. (laughs) I've organized the troops. I planned the attack. I made sure all the bases were covered. I had the the power to command the people to take over a city with me. That's the kind of leader I am. I can do this kind of amazing feat. I can become like a Napoleon and rule a city. And the other guy puts in his application and it says, (laughs) self-controlled. Who do you want? I'm sure the world takes the man who has the ability to rule and to conquest and to take over and to be mighty. And that doesn't necessarily make you a leader in God's church. But you've got to be self-controlled. Because the wisdom of God says it's actually better to rule your own spirit. It's better to have self-control than to be able to rule a city or to take over a city. You've got to have a sober mind. The elders in the church must be sober-minded. They must be self-controlled. You don't want fights and arguments and bickerings on an elder board because if it's there, I guarantee you it trickles down to the whole church, doesn't it? And division ensues. Lack of love. Breakdown at the top level will mean breakdown throughout the whole body of Christ. And so these people must have sober minds. They must be self-controlled. And the next word, respectable. In Greek, kosmios. It was used in the previous chapter to describe the way a woman should present herself in her clothing, orderly and well-presented. Now, this idea is that the, the sober-mindedness of the man leads to his ability to have his life under control, his self under control. And so what's his reputation? That is a respectable man. That's, that's the idea here. An elder is someone that is respected, not because he tries to force his respect, not because he controls people like a tyrant or manipulates them. It's because of his character that starts in his mind. It leads in the way he lives. And so that the people who view this person, they view this person as worthy of respect. 
There's some who have tried to claim that they've been called to ministry. But upon further examination, they don't have the character to match. And to that, Paul would say, no character, no calling. No character, no calling. You're not an elder if you can't meet the qualifications, no matter what your skills and abilities are. In God's economy, abilities can become liabilities if they lead us to self-reliance. This is true not for the elder, but for all of us. If you lean on your abilities, the gifts God has given you, rather than the long, hard, soul-searching work of developing your character before God, you will shortcut your spiritual growth. You have all been given gifts, but your gifts aren't meant to lead you to self-reliance. They're meant to lead you to humble approach to God where you say, God, thank you, you've made me this way, you've gifted me this way, how can I serve you? We must never think too highly of ourselves. And so in any opportunity to to serve, any opportunity for ministry, not just for leadership, but for any of us who would ever serve, we must always say character matters first. In anything that we do, it's character first. Develop your own heart first. Deal with your own pride first. Start at home in your own heart first. Meet those qualifications. Character has the steering wheel over ministry fruitfulness. We can let competency sit in the back, and that's good to have competent leaders. But first, character matters. Character is king. And so you you might be even thinking to yourself, okay, this character matters so deeply. How do we really know who are the people with the character? Uh, Isn't it true? Haven't we seen it? People can get up front for one hour a week on Sunday and they can maybe expound great messages from the Word and they can be really powerful preachers and their character can be failing. How how are we to know people of true character? Churches have been duped throughout the ages about people who can preach and who can perform upfront type duties that the pastors are supposed to. How, How are we supposed to know? I love, again, the wisdom of God's Word gives us some direction here. And that's where we come to the family. And so first we look at the man's qualifications of character, but now he dresses several things that have to do with the family. The family. Let's think about the family for a second here. In all my years of uh, kind of being in the ministry world and, and being in seminary and reading books, trying to learn what it is to be a pastor and to learn from the Word. I get to know a lot of people. I go to conferences and you hear the people up front and you, you, you read the books and the authors are well-known names. And, and you get to almost, especially in today's digital world, you can watch videos of people and you can kind of build for yourself a group of teachers that you learn from that have never really personally met you, just people you know from the resources they've given you. And, and, and at times, I have shared with my wife, Ashley, of uh, the things I'm learning and the people I'm reading and listening to. And it's funny, she's always on to something. She's never fully impressed with a preacher until she hears about the family. <laughs> she, 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 she'll go, wow, that's a great sermon. What's his wife like? What are his kids like? I think there's something biblical about that. Because what is happening here in this text 
He's talking about the character qualifications of leaders in the church, and then he begins to bring up matters about his home as a way to evidence if he's actually called or not. Isn't it true that one of the best things a kid can say of their parents, oh, dad was consistent. Who he was at church was who he was at home. There was no disconnect between his public persona and his private home life. There wasn't a disconnect. And isn't it true that one of the worst things a kid could say after they've grown up in the home of a professing believer, say of their father or they say of their mother, oh man, it was two different worlds. Who my dad was at church, he was kind and he was gregarious and he'd talk to anyone. And you took him home or after church, we got home and it was a different story. Impatient, short-tempered, not generous, not kind to his own kids, two-faced, you might say. And isn't it true that those kind of parents usually end up turning their kids away from the church and from Christianity? And so Paul obviously with the wisdom of God, writes into the very qualifications for the leaders of the church matters about the home. Because you, you might be able to fool a church. I tell you, it's much harder to fool your, your wife. It's much harder to fool your kids who see you every day. Look at verse 5. Well, actually, let's look at verse 4. He must manage his own household well. With all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Do you see the logic? If you can't care for your wife and kids, you're not qualified to care for the whole church. Now friends, again, I have to make this clear. This is a qualification for elders because... It's important for all Christians that Christians ought to be the people with homes that are in order. Not perfect, not always easy. But we are to start with the people God has given us who live under the same roof as us and to demonstrate our commitment to the Lord there. And it is there that we earn the right to speak anywhere else. It is there where we prove our ability to minister in the church of God. The people who know you best, what do they say about you? The people who watch you wake up in the morning and go to bed at night. Now, what do they say about your character? Are you faithful there? That's where it begins. Do you think you could abandon that responsibility and yet be qualified to serve in God's church? Speaking to men, Men, if we fail at home, we fail. If we fail at home, if we fail to love our wives, if we fail to disciple and raise our kids, we fail. You can get a degree, you can get a good job, you can make your money, you can advance your career, and if you fail at loving your wife, you're not qualified. Trust me, it's not a trade you'll be happy with. 
20 years down the road when you sacrificed your relationship with your wife for your career. If you find yourself on the way up that corporate ladder and you gain superiority and you bring in a giant paycheck and you have authority over hundreds of people and you're parenting your kids in a way that your kids don't even know who you are, you're failing to disciple your own children, you're failing. It doesn't mean there's no grace. There's absolutely grace for anyone who comes to the conclusion that they're wrong before God and there's grace for them to turn from that lifestyle and make changes and fix the problems. God gives grace. But that is not the trajectory Christians ought to be on. Especially if you desire to serve in the church. If you desire to take any form of leadership in the church, it begins at home begins at home this is part of how the church is different from the world isn't it what profession in the world will disqualify you for failing as a husband what profession will disqualify you for failing to to care for your kids You, you could be the president of the united states and be living in a life of adultery We've seen this in our own lifetime. And you still can hold the office. But you can't lead a church and be failing at home, be failing with your wife, and be failing with your kids, and still lead. And so Paul calls Timothy to make this abundantly clear that the church needs to start with managing the household well. Manage the household well. And that's the reason the leaders need to do that is because all of us need to start there. What are we looking for in our families? Let's look at three qualifications that he delineates, starting with the first one here, the husband of one wife. We're going to call this purity, husband of one wife. Literally, again, I mentioned this, the Greek is a one-woman man. It's a little bit of a challenging uh, phrase to interpret, and I won't go through all the details of what it could potentially mean, but I think the main idea is, is it is referring to a deep purity that the man has in his marriage. He is committed to one woman. He is not a many-woman man. He is a one-woman man. There are some people, even in their marriage, are many women, men, and that's because though they are on the marriage certificate, there's one person, their eyes are wandering and their heart is wandering, and that is the type of man who is not qualified to be in leadership in the church. This person who is to meet this qualification of being a husband of one wife or a one-woman man must have a devoted heart to his spouse. He must be committed to her. He must have eyes for her and her alone. This is absolutely critical. He must be a man of single-minded love and devotion to his bride. And there's theological importance to this, isn't there? Because Christ loves his bride, the church. And the marriage relationship is meant to point back to Christ's love for his church. And if you have leaders in the church who don't emphasize that or model that in their own marriages, it's going to even distort the gospel. See, the gospel is God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. He came 
to live a perfect life that we could never live and then to die in our place for our sins. Why? Because he loved us. He loved his people. He rose from the dead to secure our justification. And he freely offers to anyone who would ever trust him full forgiveness of sins. That love that Jesus has for his church, that commitment that Jesus has to his church is meant to be pictured, brought to life in a husband and wife relationship. And when a husband and wife do not share that unity and love, if the husband does not love his bride, if he is not committed to his bride, if he is not single-mindedly devoted to her and her alone, guess what? It is a picture that's distorting the gospel, not promoting it. And so it is absolutely essential that the elder must be a one-woman man. I don't know if I need to state the seriousness of this qualification. I don't know if I can overstate it. I need to bring up the wives who have been wrecked by a man's failure here or the churches that have been brought to shambles by their leaders who have failed this one qualification. So friends, I ask all of you, how's your purity? You may need to seek a friend and confess things. And there's freedom in confessing sin and having someone look you in the, the, the eyes and say, I forgive you. You might need to do that. You certainly need to bring it to God. How's your marriage? How are your commitments there? Do not fail here. We want our marriages to be beautiful pointers to God's love for his church, demonstrated in Christ's loving, sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection for us. So wherever you're at, would you let pride get in the way? Would you let pride cause you to not say anything to anyone? I pray that you won't. And that you'd humble yourself if you do have some issues in your life where you need help, that you wouldn't let pride hinder you here and that you would let your humility lead the way so that you could go to someone and say, hey, I need help in this area or my marriage needs help in this area. I hope premarital and marital and postmarital and any kind of marital counseling isn't like this weird off thing that we only do every once in a while. I hope that our church is always working together for our marriages, Right? And that if you even sense there might be an issue, that you're reaching out to people to get prayer and help and input, don't let pride prevent that. The elders must lead the way in this. The second qualification in the family is the managed household. The managed household. He must manage his own household well. And that one of the ways that demonstrates itself is as with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Now, that doesn't mean perfect children. <laughs> doesn't mean they're obeying your every command all the time, but it does mean that they, are, uh, have, they have a spirit of submissiveness to their parents, especially to the one who would be an elder. They are submitting to him. And this is the, tr the, the, the testing ground for the elder is, can you lead your own kids? Are your own kids willing to follow you? 
Are they willing to, to walk alongside you? Are they willing to walk behind your lead? And if you can't lead there, then how are you going to lead in the church is what Paul's logic is. I was recently speaking to, to Mark, um, a kind of a, a humorous story um, about when I was first starting to, to preach and serve in a church back in Canoga Park and didn't get that many opportunities to preach. And this one time I, I had an opportunity. I was so excited. I, I prepped and I prayed and I got my exposition of Ephesians 2 all ready and went that Sunday morning and I preached and it was one of those Sundays. I just felt like I was killing it. Zinging here and zinging there. I was preaching the word. It was flowing. It was coming strong. I felt like I was just, you know, I'm like, maybe I can preach. Maybe I can, I can do this. I got done and, and people thanked me and all that and we got in the car. And you know what? My two-year-old did not appreciate my sermon one bit. Not, not, not at all. My six-month-old at the time Maybe she enjoyed it so much she left a present in her diaper at that point. Uh, maybe it wasn't Joel. I don't know. Maybe she didn't like the sermon. But I remember after preaching that sermon, going home and feeling impatient that I now have to take care of a crying baby and, and a, a, a dirty baby. I got to help my wife take care of my children now. Isn't that pathetic? by the way, that, that, that I, I felt really good about myself up front. And then when it got down to actually living out the Christian life, I felt impatient. It's sad. But as in the moment, God's grace broke through and reminded me. I could preach the most amazing sermons this world has ever heard. But if I fail right there, if I fail with my kids, if I fail with helping my wife, if I'm not willing to, to stoop to the level of a servant and, and love and care for tenderly my own children, listen, I'm disqualified to be in the pulpit. I have disqualified myself to preach the Word of God and to lead in the church. If I can't care for my very own children, then I can't care for the church of God. I've known men who, out of respect for the office of elder, have recognized in their own life that they needed to step away from ministry in order to take care of their family. And you know what? That is a commendable thing to do because they understand the calling. So how's the leadership of your own household? How's your own leadership of your own household? How's your family? You taking care of things at home? The last qualification we'll end here of the family is hospitable. I know that's a character trait, but it also has to do with the home, so I included it under the family. Hospitable. The, the word is a compound word in Greek. It means lover of strangers, right? Lover of strangers. You, you love the stranger. You love visitors. All Christians are actually called to this. All Christians are called to be hospitable, but the elder is to be the one leading the way. So not only is his character above reproach, his marriage is pure, his kids are being raised in the truth, there's a love there and there's a submissiveness there, but he's also then opening up his life so that others could see it. That's what hospitality is. He's generous with his time. He's generous with his own home. In fact, the, 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 the elder or pastor who would be hospitable, even the Christian who's hospitable, sees his own home as a tool for blessing others. 
It's a tool. What, what do you use your home for? Is it, is it just the place you get away from serving everybody else? The elder would see that home is a place to open up and bless others with. It's the haven for storm-tossed people and storm-tossed lives. The house of an elder should be a house of welcome, a house where you can feel at home. I'm praying as we establish a plurality of elders here that when we nominate one and one's brought forward and they're presented to the church, people will sit in those chairs and they'll say, hey, yeah, I've been in his home. He, he took me to lunch. He's the one who sat with me. He's the one who asked me those good questions. He's the one that's committed to me. He's the one if I, I felt really cared for. Yeah, yeah, I know him. Of course I do. He's, he's loved me. And this is what all Christians are called to do. Romans 15, verse 7, Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. How has Christ welcomed you? Did he make you earn it? Did Christ make you prove it? Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And elders are leading that charge. But all the church is saying, yes, I was a prodigal. I abandoned my father. I left his home. I have been a great sinner. I know what it's like to squander the blessings of God. But then in, we, we, we remember the gospel, right? And we, we think back to that time that God in his grace began to call us home. That God's love was so great that it could cover all my sins. His grace was so amazing it could transform my heart. He calls me home and remember, though I was lost and though I was dead in sin and though I was guilty of offending the Father, what did the Father do? He sent His Son to seek and save me. And you remember the picture of the prodigal son and, and he begins his way home? You remember what the Father does? He gets out on the front porch. He's looking for his son coming home. And when he sees his son, he puts open his arms. He's, my son, my son, you were lost and now you're found. You were dead and you're alive. And he embraces his own son. What kind of welcome is that? I'll tell you what, it wasn't something the son deserved. It was a free and overwhelming love and grace of God given to the undeserving. And that is exactly how we are called to treat the visitors treat those who don't deserve our love, to treat people we don't know yet, to welcome them in with open arms and embrace them, to show them the love of God. I guarantee you in this dark world, there are people who have never been so loved. Maybe all their lives have been one rejection to the next. And our prayer is that they would walk into a church like this and they'd say, what love? And maybe they never could conceive of a God so gracious and a God so loving until they saw the looks on the faces of the church that welcomed them and embraced them and showed them kindness and care and patience. And they go, oh, that's what God's like. All this stuff about God is so abstract. And then I saw these people love me and welcome me and embrace me. That's the gospel. And the church is a place where the gospel is made visible and tangible. If you know what it is to be welcomed by God through Jesus Christ, then you can take 
that model and show it to those others around you. And listen, the elders are to be leading the charge. They're the ones welcoming, showing hospitality as Christ has welcomed us. We'll close with this story. There was a man during the time of the Revolutionary War who happened to be riding his horse by a group of soldiers. And the soldiers were trying to repair a barricade that had been broken down and the troop's leader was shouting directions, shouting instructions at the troop, but not making really any attempt to help. So the man riding by asked the leader, why aren't, why aren't you helping? Why aren't you helping the, the rest of your guys? They're all exhausted. And the leader indignantly replied, sir, I'm a corporal. The civilian on the horse apologized and, and dismounted from his horse and he began to jump in and help the soldiers. They were exhausted and they were appreciative of any help. When the job was done, the man who had come in turned to the corporal and said, Mr. Corporal, next time you have a job like this and, and not enough men to do it, go to your commander-in-chief and I will come and help you again. That man was George Washington. The corporal, of course, felt ashamed of himself. But that story became popular after the Revolutionary War because it became a picture of a good use of authority. The purpose of authority is to wield it for the service of good for others. It is to use it in humble, sacrificial love. Anyone who would pursue being an elder who has a measure of authority must have character. And it must show in their family because it is imperative that whatever authority they have is used to bless and not to steal. Used to love, not to take. May the Lord raise up these men among us and may our entire church be characterized by these qualifications. Let's pray. Now, so Lord, we... Thank you for your word that gives us clear statements about what kind of men you want to lead your church and also calls each and every one of us to a life of holiness and purity and character. And so, Lord, we pray that you would purify us by your word, that you'd make the leaders among us long for such qualifications to be manifest in our lives. We pray this all for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.